Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're looking back this week at the forced removal and imprisonment of Japanese Americans, which began 80 years ago this week when FDR signed Executive Order 9066 over the constitutional objections of even some of his own cabinet. Today, we're joined by John Tateshi, who was imprisoned at Manzanar with his family and came to lead the redress movement, which won reparations and an apology for Japanese Americans. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate your inviting me to be here. Can we start with your family story? I mean, you were born in Los Angeles a couple years before the start of of World War II. And then and then what happened? Well, the executive order was issued by Roosevelt in uh, February. It was February 19th, 1942. Um, But nothing really happened for a while. And what he did essentially was put the army in charge of whatever was going to happen on the West Coast, and also on the East Coast. But the, the real focus was on the West Coast. And the Army started implementing these policies, first a curfew and travel restriction, and then finally this order to be removed. And um, my family, we were, I was born in Los Angeles, and I was about two and a half years old, a little over that, mm-hmm. when the orders started being implemented for removal. And... Uh, on the day that we were, my family was moved from Los Angeles to a camp called Manzanar. Um, I broke out with German measles and um, was put into quarantine and my family left to go to Los Angeles. I was at the LA General Hospital Mm. um, under armed guard, by the way, because I was in an unrestricted area. and until my quarantine ended, and then I was uh, sent to Manzanar to join my family. What happened was that the entire Japanese American population was removed from the West Coast, from their homes. Uh, there was no option. This wasn't an evacuation. This was a forced uh, expulsion from the mm-hmm. West Coast. And we were put into 10 different prisons, concentration camps um, in various parts of the United States. And we're there until the war ended, after which time we were allowed to come back. But this was 
this was one of the most egregious violations of the Constitution against American citizens in the history of the country, but went very unnoticed by the rest of the country because, uh, I mean, you know, this isn't a thing the government would publicize and say, look at all the good things we're doing here. This was kept very quiet, you know, mm-hmm. sort of under the, the radar. Mm-hmm. And um, so our families all were forced to leave the West Coast and were put into these camps. Um, some people say there were benign camps because they weren't like the German concentration camps, which by the way, were misnomers. Those were death camps, labor camps. Ours were concentration camps. And it's true, they weren't like those camps, but they were prisons. You know, We had barbed yeah. wire fences around us, armed guards in towers with searchlights. Um, and those guards had orders, shoot to kill anyone trying to escape. So we were prisoners of our own country. And the only reason for that was race, had nothing to do with anything other than our race and the greed of people along the West Coast. And And by that, you mean wanting to take over Japanese land, houses, businesses, farms, that kind of thing. Yeah, one thing that happened was that the Japanese immigrants who came here were farmers, basically. So they sought land. They couldn't own land because there was an alien land law Mm -hmm. in various West Coast states, and California was one of them, which said, if you you are not an American citizen, you cannot legally own land. And the East, say, the Asian uh, immigrants, and specifically Japanese-American or Japanese immigrants, could not become American citizens by uh, federal statute. They were forbidden from applying for... uh, becoming Americans, um, American citizens. So what they started doing was having children and their children being born in the United States were American citizens. And they started buying lands uh, in the name of their children. Hmm. And so by 1941, uh, for example, through the Central Valley of California, Japanese American farmers had a monopoly on the truck farming industry worth millions of dollars um, a year. And, um, you know, it's hard to, to sort of picture it, but the Bay Area and places like Los Angeles were largely agricultural. You know, all over the East Bay, there were farms and nurseries uh, down the South Bay farms, mm-hmm. um, and many of those owned by Japanese farmers. And the same in Los Angeles. I grew up in LA and just about three blocks from where I lived, uh, which was in the, the city of Los Angeles, there were farms, family farms uh, of several acres. And so, you know, Japanese farmers were spread throughout the West Coast. Yeah. And a lot of the, there were two things that really motivated this. One was greed, because there was a lot of uh, value in the lands that farmers owned. And the other was just pure racism, because there was, mm-hmm. from the time of the early Chinese immigrants, a push to get rid rid of Asians out of the state of California. And Japanese farmers or Japanese immigrants came in in 1885. And from the the moment they stepped ashore, they they faced racism and discrimination um, and all kinds of uh, harsh antagonisms. So under these conditions, there was this push to get rid of all the Asians and specifically Japanese because we were landowners. And so 
they weren't able to do this legally because it was unconstitutional. But when World War II started, the attack at Pearl Harbor, suddenly, voila, there was there was a rationale there was for the doing way. what, right. yeah, for what the government could not do or California could not do legally for over fifty years, about a hundred years, and suddenly here was an excuse that allowed them to do something that otherwise would never have happened. But you know, and it it was in disregard of the Constitution because every protection we had as citizens. We and I, you know, I include myself because I was a child protected by the, the Constitution and the laws of the country. All of those were ignored. And so we had these limitations put on us at the initial stage and then the removal, the forced removal into these 10 different prisons around the country. We're talking with John Tateshi, uh, author of Redress, the inside story of the successful campaign for Japanese-American reparations. He was imprisoned with his family by the U.S. government during World War II. What questions do you have for John? Do you yourself have a personal or family story or memories about this time? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You know, John, I wanted to talk about the years after the war and returning to Los Angeles. And what did the imprisonment and its sort of after effects of that trauma do among the kind of different generations of in Japanese households? Well, there were three generations affected by the government's actions. The Issei, uh, you know, it's, it's the numbering system in Japanese, Ichi ni san, uh, one, two, three. The Issei were the immigrant population. By the time these orders were implemented, they were, they were old. I mean, they were in their 60s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in the 40s, being 60 years old is kind of like being 90 today. Um, so there was the Issei generation, and then their children, the Nisei, who were American citizens, and then my generation, uh, the children of the Nisei, the Sansei generation. It affected all three generations in very different and very profound ways. For the Issei, it destroyed their future. They had nothing left. They lost their lands. They lost Mm. the promise of what America stood for. And for the the Nisei, it was extremely traumatic um, because here they were American citizens. As these notices started being posted in the Japanese-American communities up and down the West Coast, they never really thought this would affect them because their, their thinking was, well, you know, I'm an American citizen. Mm-hmm. This doesn't mean me. And they were shocked and bewildered when the order was finally posted that said, uh, for all persons of Japanese ancestry, um, a- uh, aliens and non-aliens alike, which means, I mean, a non-alien is a citizen, right? So suddenly the Nisei realized they were under the same orders. I mean, they were concerned about their parents, what would happen to them, mm-hmm. but never believed in their heart of hearts and this, this real need to be American that they were actually being affected by these orders. Yeah. So when all of this happened, we, the children, the Sanseis, were really protected by our parents. But we started understanding from that experience there was something about us that just didn't sit right in this country. And so as we returned from the war, the Issei resigned themselves to 
kind of a loss of future. The Niseis were so traumatized by this psychologically and so deeply wounded by what this all meant, they turned to silence. They could not talk about their wartime experience because they were ashamed and they felt guilty. Um, you know, even though they were innocent of any kind of crime or any wrongdoing, they were the victims. And yet they felt that it was their fault for some reason, for some bizarre kind of reason. And they could not cope with it. So they became a silent generation, never talked about what happened during the war, built a wall around the community, around themselves. And then for us, the children, uh, what saved us was that we talked. We talked all the time about camp. As we, you know, how when you meet somebody, you ask them, what do you do? Or when you're kids, what school do you go to? Our mm -hmm. question always was, what camp were you in? Oh, wow. And there was a kind of pecking order, a hierarchy of experience in those camps. And we would talk about all of this. Mm -hmm. So we had this communication among ourselves, although we would never talk to our white friends at school yeah. about what the experience is, was or what happened to us. Because some of them would say, well, where'd you guys go? What happened? And um, we would just turn silent because we felt that same shame and uh, embarrassment about having been in prisons. And we understood that. So as my generation grew up, got older, there was a second part to it of kids born after World War II, the younger Sansei, who knew nothing about this experience because we older Sansei wouldn't talk to them about it in the same way, you know, when you're in school and or when you're a kid, you're, say, seven years old and someone is five, that's a, a huge gap of age. And you want nothing to do with younger kids and because they become sort of a drag and a nuisance on you. So that was kind of how we separated ourselves from the younger Sansei who had no idea what had yeah. happened during the war. John, can and you they tell started me? Oh. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. No, I just wanted you to make sure we got to the redress movement. You know, your work in, in getting reparations and an apology for Japanese Americans. You know, tell me just about it and what you think people can learn from that experience. Well, you know, we sought redress from the government for our experience, not because we wanted reparations for ourselves. We demanded money. It's true. You, If you're going to seek redress or you're going to seek reparations, money is involved. It has to be because it is a statement of sincerity about what went wrong, trying to rectify it. But for us, it was about trying to ensure that what happened to us never happened again to any group in this country. So the redress campaign, you know, it was, it was a very complex campaign, had so many different parts to it, so many different groups that were at at odds with each other. Um, but we did this campaign because we wanted to educate Americans about our experience and for them to understand that we're American citizens and that what happened was a violence or an act against Americans. It was a violation of the constitution. And, you know, I mean, for me personally, I, I got really tired of people always saying to me, you speak really good English or where mm. do you, where do you come from? Almost, you know, as if you're an alien from Mars or something, 
But the assumption always that I was never an American. Mm -hmm. And I was determined that by the time we finished this campaign, people would understand that there is this, this segment of the population, Asian Americans, who are, in fact, American citizens, and many now fifth, sixth, seventh generation here. You know, I'm a third generation, and there in, in Japanese American uh, communities, there are uh, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generations being born. And, and so for us, it was about acceptance as Americans and demanding that be, we be recognized as equal to anyone else, that we are as good as anyone else as American citizens. That was largely the, the, the impetus that moved a lot of the campaign, uh, even though we never really formulated the thinking in those terms. But ultimately, it was our effort to contribute to the future of this country, to say that what happens to us should never, ever happen again to any other group in this country if the situation should repeat itself. And we were determined that the redress campaign was a mechanism that would somehow prevent this from happening. And part of that was to educate the American public about who we were and what happened, because most Americans had no idea this had happened. So it was a, um, an educational campaign to say, this is something that happened in our history and we need to discuss it. At first it was negative. Uh, people reacted against it and, you know, really you were critical. Um, and, you know, the usual go back to where you came from. But over time, people started to understand that this, this was indeed a constitutional issue we were discussing and that our demands were not unreasonable to the point that the majority of the members of Congress voted to affirmatively to provide redress for Japanese Americans. How did you Which feel when you won? Remarkable. Yeah, how did you feel when you won? Uh, I felt I felt a, a real sense of relief um, because I had been involved with the campaign for ten years. Um, my family sacrificed a lot in in allowing my wife and my kids and allowing me the freedom to do work on this campaign. Um, and it was for me this you know it wasn't this grand moment as much as it was sort of a, a relief, like finally we achieved what we set out to do. But that was, that was sort of a, an evolving feeling because I could, I could sense that change over a period of years as I worked on this campaign. And then, you know, President Reagan signed the bill that provided this as a federal law that redress would be given to Japanese Americans. It was part of the history of uh, America. And it felt good to, to have that sense of acceptance that, you know, here's one at that point, one of the most conservative presidents signing a, a very significant uh, law. And, um, you know, I was very pleased about it. Um, and there's a reason why we, Japanese Americans, why we um, commemorate February 19th, every year, a day of remembrance, because it's important for us to keep reminding this country that this took place and that one of our best known, most yeah. uh, legendary president um, did, yeah. was not infallible. He signed that executive order. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. We've been talking with John Tateshi, author of Redress, the inside story of the successful campaign for Japanese-American reparations. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We'll be talking more about the forced removal of Japanese-Americans on Friday. Stay tuned for that. But for now, I'm Alexis Madrigal, and stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.